any cultures around the world are nomads. Somali people, we don't have a history of agricultural development like many other countries, but we do have a camel, goats, and sheep. So the history of nomads, they will go for long journeys from one particular place to another place. They will discover new vegetables, new areas, and they will make the most with what they found. So nomadic cuisine, it's a homage to my own culture, but I think a lot of chefs are very nomadic as well. We're always seeking to grow and learn, whether by choice or not, we go from kitchen to kitchen as well. I try to host a supper club. Every nomadic supper, we eat on the ground. The reason that we eat on the ground, there is a, uh, an educational component about the meaning of the table. Many homes, those ones who are not very privileged to have a multiple room, they will have a one room, so the table will take a lot of space. And B, because it feels more relaxed when you eat on the floor. You know, you can stretch a little bit your legs. It brings you closer to people and also breaks a lot of the hierarchy, you know? Top of the table, I'm the man of the house, I'm the king of the coop, you know? Uh, so when you're sitting down on the floor, eating with other people, we are all equal within the sharing experience. Eat with your hands if you want to, uh, because those are the first vessels that you've been given. So if you have those vessels, learn how to use them. And is it culturally okay and not a taboo to actually lick your fingers as well? Hi, my name is Wendy Ma. And I'm Jason Innes. Welcome to The Chef Pod. Where we're sowing seeds for the future of the culinary industry. We've got a very important guest today. Yes. We have Bashir Monier. Bashir is going to be talking about slow food, race, class, and gender in the culinary industry. Bashir, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, that's kind of a welcoming. I'm blushing a little bit. I'm <laughs> glad that we're on the radio. You can't see that. <laughs> you were born in Somalia, raised in Italy and you've called Toronto home for the last 22 years. Growing up in the Med, you ate a lot of fresh seasonal foods and that was a norm. And you continue um, this tradition through farmer's market operations where you connect to the local farming and artisanal food business community. You're a passionate advocate for promoting diverse food. You also believe in being an advocate for access to good quality food for everyone. Currently, you're working with the Ontario Greenbelt in food literacy and food advocacy by engaging education, multi-ethnic African chefs, and food entrepreneur in the accessibility of Ontario-grown, culturally diverse crops. Ooh. It's a, it's a mouthful. It's impressive <laughs> is what it is, Bashir. Yes. I'm, I'm pretty inspired by all that you are trying to tackle. Those are all big subjects and issues that are very important today in our food industry. And to have somebody actually who we also didn't mention in that intro is currently teaching here at George Brown College. So to have that kind of philosophy and approach towards cooking and uh, our food industry is exciting for our students, I think. So welcome, Bashir. <laughs> uh, tell us about some of these amazing projects that you work yeah. on. Yeah, you know what? Most of the my projects are basically a reflection of my own personal experience. I grew up in Italy eating delicious Italian Mediterranean food. I was privileged enough to have a mother that was a, a real, real gourmand. You know, she loved food. She exposed me to everything. Uh, we traveled extensively in Italy, but we had also the opportunity to travel in Europe. The first time that I actually went back in the continent in Africa, I was in Tunisia, I went to Jerba, and I just fell in love with the North African cuisine. So I've always gravitated in cooking Italian and Mediterranean cuisine with a little bit of a flair for African cuisine. Although for myself, like many other people, Africa cuisine is more thought as a country versus the continent. Mm -hmm. A vast continent with over 54 countries, many languages, religious beliefs. So... I'm slowly learning about my own cultural identity. 
and I've been here now in Toronto for actually 25 years. Wow. Um, so you have to marry that kind of cuisine in, into your repertoire as well. Yeah, you know what? I'm a culinary alumni from Joe Brown College. So I graduated from Joe Brown College in 2000. I've worked in a lot of uh, you know boutique restaurants. I've worked in Italian restaurants. I've done consulting. And then I've been at Farmer's Market for about 10 to 12 years. And that was the first time that I was actually really connected to farm-to-table dining experience. So it's been about off to 15 years now that I've been submerged in a, a local Ontario procurement. And uh, at times when we talk about Canada and Toronto, there's so much pride in our cultural diversity and we pride ourselves for multiculturalism. But every now and then we also have to remind ourselves that we are actually on indigenous land. Mm-hmm. So I feel that every now and then when we talk so much passionately about multiculturalism, we tend to also dilute a little bit about the existence of indigenous community right here. Mm. So with so much gratitude, I always try to remember that the land that we are in, it's been cared for for thousands of years uh, Mm. by indigenous communities with natives and also with- Welcomed as guests sharing the land. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So local food has always been very important to me. The biggest problem working in a very Eurocentric food restaurant scene, I couldn't really reflect a lot on local food. Mm. Because as soon as they say local food and it comes in the springtime, the first thing is like fiddleheads mm-hmm. and rams, which I love them, don't get me wrong. But also as a person coming from you know a different country, I want to be able to eat local food that speaks to me. When you're creating a plate and you're making a you know a French based plate, an Italian plate, those are your the basil, your, those are the basil right, and the yes. tomato and so forth. But for people that come from more like a tropical place, how do we do that? How do we incorporate a food that is a cultural appropriate to us right. that can also grow here in Canada? Here in uh, southern Ontario, within the Green Belt, uh, the climate is similar to Northern California. Mm-hmm. The climate is rich in soil, but it's also really warm. So at optimum season, we can grow 70% of the world crops. Mm. And you know, every chef wants to create their own food, food that is a culture appropriate to them, but also think about that when we want to exercise that right, we also have to think about what does my choice, how do my choice implicate on indigenous land? Yes. You know, so we have to think about it that as much as I want to grow food that is a culture appropriate to them, the input that I get out of it, the output, How does it equate to indigenous communities? So, you know, I love almonds, but, you know, knowing that an almond not only can, it's difficult to grow right here, but the amount of water, 3.4 liters of water for one more almond, that is not really ideal for the indigenous landscape as well. So I think that within the food sovereignty movement, a lot of people, they misunderstand about our own right, but there isn't really much of a conversation about our, our own responsibility for indigenous landscape as well. Yeah, and so for our, our listeners, the difference between food security and food sovereignty, food sovereignty is the right to define your own food systems and your own culturally appropriate food. And you know, Wendy and I have had this conversation a number of times in how do you maintain this vision of sustainability and creating a, a food system that is sustainable that also recognizes people's right to define and choose their own culturally appropriate food, especially if you can't grow, like you say, almonds or avocados um, or bananas in our yeah. in our system. So, for instance, last week I was I was shopping and mangoes were on sale from Peru 
for these beautiful mangoes, nine mangoes for nine ninety nine. Wow. Right? And like my my children at home, like they mash up mangoes, right? Like they just destroy <laughs> them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Like, we have a couple of cases of mangoes at home. The sustainability part of me feels very guilty in that because I'm I'm supporting uh, that that system, but at the same time, like that's that's part of my cultural identity. Like growing up yeah. and jumping in mango trees. Like I remember as a kid, mango trees being so sturdy, you could climb to the top, and then you could jump from the top and like catch yourself on the boughs below and let the boughs kind of like sink you down to the down to the ground. That wow. was that was me growing huh. up, right? So well, then yeah. yeah, that is it's always that's the toughest one. How do you reconcile that? How do you have begin with the conversation of yes, please let's the movement of food sovereignty. Everyone has their right to define a healthy cultural food identity where they decide to settle, but at the same time recognize we're on shared land. Yeah. And by taking more land to grow foods that you associate with culturally before, mm-hmm. you're potentially taking away from somebody else's opportunity. I have conversations like this with my students, and a lot of times they say, well, we can't get rid of that. That's tradition. And we can't stop eating that because that's how you're supposed to eat it. And I, I bring it to the perspective of a chef and I say, we love flavors. And like you say, we use the ingredients to make something delicious. We let the ingredients speak for themselves. And I introduce indigenous uh, products like the pawpaw, which is only available around October, depending on the seasons and, and climate. But I introduce them and I tell them about the texture and the flavor components of it and how it breaks down and how it looks. I show them pictures and students right away go, that sounds like a mango or a papaya or a banana. And all of a sudden I say, well, let's use this ingredient as a recipe for a dish that reminds you of home. And we start having those reconciling conversations about identity from your home originally and your identity as in your home now, which is Toronto. And some of them walk away inspired, but it is still a very complicated topic. I think at this moment right now, we have a, a lack of a food literacy in general. Yes. So I think that we had lost over the time the, the opportunity to sit down at home and talk about uh, food with our family, sharing a beautiful meal. And I think because of this lack of a food like literacy, lack of a food economy, because of the cost of living is so high, uh, there is a, a disproportional uh, misunderstanding between a uh, of wanting to cook food and not have enough time to be able to cook food. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a difference between uh, food sovereignty and then poverty and disparity as well. Right. And I think that at times people, they mix it all together. Right. So the conversation within our slow food class, uh, we're having a difficult time reconciling the fact that in the pursuit of wanting to do something good by purchasing good, clean and fair food, within that time, we also ask, how are we able to financially afford that? Right. So we went to the conversation of an average cook in Toronto, maybe gets paid approximately $24,000 per year. Right. Right. So if you get paid $24,000 per year and the government suggests for you to spend 10% of that in food, now you're finding yourself the food allocated that you have is approximately $2,400, but your monthly budget for a single person is about $200. Right. When you break it down, it's about 50 bucks a week. So for 50 bucks a week, how much wholesome food can you eat? And forget about wholesome food. How can you meet our ideology of wanting to eat a good, clean, and fair food when now you can only eat $7 a day? So if you don't have a home economics and you haven't been taught the basic of cooking, how are you going to be able to make something delicious for yourself or for your family with something like $7 a day? Yeah. 
It is. When you start bringing it into it logically and, and how you just mathematically broke that down, it becomes very structural, regulated, and you feel you're locked in a box. But what I love about the slow food philosophy is not just about being adamant on only supporting good, clean, and fair. It's also about storytelling and traditions and sitting down and having conviviality. So even if you and I have a meal once a year where we talk about the good, clean, and fair, and we support the good, clean, and fair, and we pay a little bit more so that we out of our, our, our realms and our income to allow this conversation. And hopefully that conversation moves to something else and that graduates to food literacy, like you say, to more people asking more questions. And it's not just about day, the day-to-day being able to follow a set of confined rules. It is about trying to make one step forward and not 40 at the same time. Did you want to talk a little bit more about, about slow food and the slow food principles? Do you want to just give our listeners a sort of a, like an overview of what slow food is and what it does? Yeah, so the slow food movement uh, is started in Italy in defense of Italian people against the gigantic corporation wanting to bring fast food. It started in Rome, uh, close to Piazza di Spagna, they wanted to open the first McDonald's. And the first idea they actually had it was to dump in front of the McDonald's, the first day they were planning to open a 16-wheel truck full of a pasta Maybe. cooked with tomato sauce. <laughs> so it kind of like blocked the whole idea of anybody being entering inside the McDonald's. And, uh, Although I'm really against uh, uh, food waste, uh, I thought it was a brilliant idea to make a real statement uh, in regards of a standing in solidarity against uh, this kind of a fast food. Um, since then, which is now almost 30 years, uh, the slow food principles, uh, which is in the principle of about uh, good, clean, and fair food. So good in regards of uh, not only the food has to taste good, has to be clean because the way the food is being processed, the way it's being made, should also fit uh, an element of a biodiversity, if it's possible, you know, that element of uh, being local, seasonal, and also organic, wherever possible as well. Although that one also has its own derimification, a different kind of a complexity within. So good, clean, and ideally fair as well, because uh, the farmers, uh, the growers, and the people who are going through the process of being able to bring us this food should be paid equitably as well. When you look at how nowadays uh, many of the developing countries, uh, they're becoming very much in the fast food process as well. So many of my students, they are from Southeast Asia. So now we're talking about how some of the first world problems uh, or some of the food that is being brought to North America now is starting to merge in India. Mm. So to give you the example with Maggi now, is the largest uh, developer of curries. So a lot of uh, curries that has been multi-generational made throughout India, now a lot of Indian family are becoming skilled and disconnected from the curry wow. making. So a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs, a lot of uh, young people, instead of uh, having to make a curry from scratch, they can just open a, a Maggie or a Nor and they can have a, your Vindaloo, you can have your butter chicken, just quick and made. Right. So the question is, how is it possible that thousands of years uh, of knowledge and experience uh, now they're getting taken away from gigantic operations? Uh, so slow food principle, it's against those things. Yes. So the goal for them is to become ambassadors for their own uh, countries and being able to say this is not environmentally sustainable. This is not good for our own health. 
and we have the right to stand against those issues. And it tastes a fraction of deliciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about flavor, you know, some of those students don't have a compass. You know, some of them don't a have food compass, you mean? a food compass or flavor compass. Flavor uh, compass. Because if now your parents also have been using nor for the daily, right? right? That's the norm. That's the norm, right? Norm is the norm. 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 So so how would you know what was meant to be before if you don't really have that kind of a compass? And I think here in Canada or in the United States or in Europe also, it's starting to become the norm, not having a compass for them to be able to relate about how things used to be before. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting that the large large corporations they have teams of scientists designed to make things taste as delicious as you as, as close to it re- yeah. replicates. Right? Yeah. So, um, so some people, they're you're right, their 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 flavor compass is off. I love that. I love that concept. It's a good approach. I definitely have a lot of friends that will invite me over, saying they've made things from scratch, and their stock is literally a bouillon cube from Nor. And you're just like, okay, but that's what they were brought up yeah. to do. Like as long as they're standing in the kitchen, it's from scratch. It, but you know, but also in Italy, you know, and you that's know, such the, a, not that different. Sometimes. You know, it's not that yeah. different. You find some Italian recipes where they make stuffed pasta and they add a little bit of a beyond there are actually some chefs like marco pierre white you know that does advertisement and i'm not advocating they get paid you know and don't get me wrong like there's a difference sometimes about you know what what your tongue might tell you that is delicious but you cannot deny it what what can be like really really flavorful in your mouth but it's also for you to be able to have an understanding yes right because your mouth can tell you particular things but your heart and soul and your mind they tell you what's right from wrong yeah and that kind of a you know emotional compass as well it's for us to be able to say yes this tastes delicious mm-hmm. but i know that it's not good it's not good and it's yeah. not might not be clean it might not, it might be not fair. fair either yeah, yeah, you yeah. only get that from tasting more and trying more things and diversifying your palate and being aware right aware, it's yeah. the awareness the food That's literacy correct. that you that you were talking about earlier yeah. for yeah. sure and so those are the things that while i'm teaching the slow food i'm addressing to my students to think about the slow food as this ideology that has wonderful principles yeah. but this it has to do primarily with environmental justice environmental sustainability. So those are the things that are important to me because then in within an environmental justice and sustainability, then we also explore class, race, and gender. Because when you come from a place of a poverty or when you come from a place of a financial disparity, then you know that those things that are the first ones to be affected. Yes. Women are the first one to get affected because when there is an environmental injustice, a lot of women are the first ones to feel it. Then we talk about the class, you know, when people are poor, those are the first one to feel the impact on environmental justice, you know? And then we talk about race, because when you look at the numbers, uh, there is a disproportion between people of color, right, marginalized community, who don't have access to a variety of resources, and those environmental degradation, they are the people to feel the first impact. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we can discuss food or environmental justice without looking at the What's the root of the problem? And the root of the problem, the reality is the environment that we are. We have to look into the racism, the colonialism, and the things that actually created this problem right here. But while we're talking about those things, uh, we should be eating also food to allow us to celebrate it. Because we can't just be emotionally consumed (laughs) with all of those things. And I think that's a beautiful thing about the slow food is for us to be able to gather together, to share delicious food, to be able to talk about this and figure out social changes while we have this element of a breaking bread together. Uh, I'm thinking back to a podcast I listened to last year 
called, the podcast was called Racist Sandwich. And Paul Taylor from Future was on there. And he talked about the system that we live in as a white supremacist food system. What can we do to make changes to that system? The food system on its own, it's only a problem. Like we have a lot of issues within the food system, but the issues that we have is actually within our government. You know, so I think that the biggest problem, we have to differentiate food injustice, food inequality, environmental issues, but we cannot just look at them individually without thinking about the people that we elect to make those particular choices for us. I mean, we are one of the very few countries in the industrialized world that we don't have a national food policy. When you really think about it, we don't have a national food policy. And if we don't have a national food policy, then it's difficult for us to be able to address our own food systems Right, because then we can really acknowledge how the policy can influence our everyday uh, food systems. So I think it always starts in understanding about food policy is one thing, but actually the government and the people they elected, those are the people responsible for the policy making. Absolutely. So last year we got our, our first sort of national food policy. What was your what was your thought about about that? I don't think that we have really been able to implement anything at all. There is a conversation which gives right. us hope. It was posted. Uh, it's been hosted. <laughs> yeah. but there, was, no. there was about four. I think I can't remember exactly. Four, it was four million or twenty million dollars that was that was associated with with developing that, but, uh, to developing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there's really nothing be done at this moment. But right. you know, sometimes you know when policy are made, we have to ask ourselves. Who's been sitting at the table yeah. to make those particular choices? So I think Paul Taylor also was addressing that the new Canada Food Guide, as an example, mm-hmm. there's really no consultation with the general public. Mm-hmm. So when you look at into the diet that has been suggested, where you know where you cut down protein, which I think is great because it's the first time that we actually we don't have the meat lobbies influences our Canada Food Guide, but at the same time. We are, we are looking, going back about class, race, and gender, we're mm-hmm. looking about removing protein from it, mm-hmm. animal-based protein, yeah. and, in, and seeing you know nuts and avocado and all kinds of beautiful stuff, where it goes back up around poor people, how do they afford to eat nuts? Yeah. When nuts now maybe they cost like $17 per pound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So... And we're encouraging them to eat foods that aren't indigenously grown in Canada. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so we our first our first podcast that we did was actually about the the Canada Food Guide. Oh, we did okay. that about a year ago. A yeah. Year ago today. So we yeah. had that. We had a lot of this discussion around um, the lobby and how the government. I thought the government did a pretty good job in sort of protecting the scientists from the the meat lobby and the dairy board. And the juice board and the sugar manufacturers, yeah. right? Um, this is the first time you would see dialogue encouraging people to eat together and mm. make food at home and not go out so much. And like it's a step again forward as we were yeah. seeing it as being hopeful, a yeah. single star in the sky. Yeah. But at the same time, where are you in the city and can you see that star is a good metaphor, actually. I remember my students actually saying to me after that class when we discussed it, like, why didn't they create a different picture for a different for for different diverse groups, and I said that's a fantastic yeah. question. Why don't you email a politician right now? And let them know. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But, but the other thing that I also wanted to address when it comes about the kind of the food guide, it's that you know once the kind of the food guide has been uh, addressed, suddenly there's been a, a drop in the the meat cost to five percent. Ah. So the cost of the meat went down five percent, but the, the cost of the vegetables went up to three percent. So not only went up to 3%, but now there has been also this push toward green consumerism, 
where now a lot of companies that are supplementing a soya base. Mm -hmm. So now we're talking about removing the bovine system and addressing more plant-based diet. But again, the plant-based diet that is addressed, it's only fast food. Yeah. So it's nothing wholesome about the plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, mm -hmm. all for plant-based, but the only difference is like when you look at most companies and corporations from Beyond the Meat Burger, yeah, yeah. now even Cornflakes, yeah. Cornflakes now is actually working soya-based soya as well, wow. right? So they're trying to come up with a plant-based meats and alternative option as well. Which so only like puts more pressure on our, our agricultural system and the monocultural like farming that we want to go away from. So exactly. I had another student um, say to me, well, you know, we're, we're Canada. We grow beef. Yeah. So my food sovereignty is yeah. to eat as much steak as I can because that's what connects yep. to my roots. I mean, when I introduce myself to students and I say I'm from Alberta, they're like, yeah, Alberta beef. And <laughs> so I guess that's equally part of my food sovereignty <laughs> as well. But I mean, how do you, how do we start having these conversations? Like we're having these conversations, like these topics are everyday coffee, which we all usually catch ourselves talking about this stuff like it's everyday. But not everybody is this food literate, like you mentioned. Like, how do we start bringing up these situations where students and consumers of food, which is everyone, is more aware of their power uh, for change just by speaking up and asking for change? How do we encourage that? You know, what? I've I've seen over the past four to five years, so I'm not totally jaded. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of people who've been speaking about equality, yeah, accessibility. There's been a lot of uh, both men and women champions uh, when it comes about addressing inequality and injustice in the food system. There's been a lot of a woman who's been fighting already for thousands, thousands of years, uh, but within the food system for the past uh, four to six years, uh, there has been a lot of a food movement led by women, right? But also led by diverse women, because a lot of a food movement in general from farming to sustainability, it's always been a, a white feminist approach. Mm. You know, you look at it throughout history, you know, like a lot of the food movement, a lot of the sustainable movement always led, or at least have been made to feel that it was led by feminist white women. Nowadays, you can see in the global shift where a lot of women are actually leading this conversation. So not only coming from a Eurocentric place. So I feel very optimistic that a lot of those conversations are already starting to happen. The question is like, where are the other champions? You right. know? Where are the other champions? And I think our responsibility as a chef is like leading these conversations. Mm. A lot of the students might feel a bit uncomfortable. I do know that some of my students feel uncomfortable when I address race, class, and gender because culturally they might be a bit not different. You know, it might not be okay for them to have a woman who's gonna tell them, oh, do you mind to just clean up after yourself? You know, they might be feeling a little bit offended because it's not a norm to them. Or for them to be able to send up to a, to a teacher at the right time and say, you know, I don't really agree with you. You know, the way you spoke with me before, I felt it was a kind of, you know, really, you know. Forward or however. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, I felt really bad. I don't feel that you were supposed to be humiliating me and degrading me publicly, right? So now there are conversations that we can address to our students. Mm -hmm. So when they go in the work field, they can stand up for themselves, or at least have that kind of a knowledge. And even if they don't have the power automatically at that moment, when they are in a place of leadership, maybe they can act up. So I think already this conversation is already building up the momentum yes. for other young chefs to be able to act the way we are addressing. 
Wendy, as a as a female chef, mm-hmm. um, have you encountered any any of this sort of um, uh, sort of racism that um, or sort of genderism that Bashir is uh, referring to in terms of? I do. I mean, I I've always struggled with this concept because I always find that I being a first generation Canadian, I have a very privileged upbringing. I had access to food. I had food literacy knowledge accessible to me. What I needed to learn was always available. I can still, I could always have been able to afford food. So I never felt in a place to to complain or visualize myself as someone that was maybe gender, like put aside because I was of my gender or put aside because of my race. But as I speak more and more about this, I have to come to terms that I was actually systematically telling myself to not um, speak up in these scenarios. And so, yeah, there are moments where I'll come into situations. I've been in this industry over 10 years and I will still be next to a male chef and they'll be referred to as a chef and I'll be, I'll be called as my name. And even in, in this school, I've been teaching for three years and I'm still called my name as opposed to referred to as a chef sometimes. So I'm starting to notice it more when I'm in the industry more and more. And when I first entered the industry, I was trained here at George Brown College, so French background, graduated from the postgraduate Italian. So I have a very huge passionate attachment to Italian cuisine. But yet every time I meet someone who wants to hire me for catering or teaching class, they immediately ask me, if I can teach how to make Chinese stir fry or a Chinese dish, which uh, immediately I'm like, yeah, I'll teach, I'll show you where to eat this food. I grew up eating them in restaurants, but my parents raised me on North American cuisine as well. And we, it was celebrations that we had Chinese food. So we never learned to make it. We learned to eat it and enjoy it and celebrate it. So yeah, there are moments where I feel like I've put them aside as not negative moments. But now that I talk about it more, I've let that be a secondary characteristic trait where I'm like, no, I'm Canadian and I'm an educator. And then I cook and I know and I speak Chinese. But when I introduce myself to people who are within the industry, I right away say I'm I'm an Italian trained chef. And I don't know where the confidence of that, how to introduce myself, my personality, my identity is a little bit in flux always because I don't know who's asking the question. But you see, the difference is that you have to explain and justify both your race and your culture. Other people, they don't have to do that. So you really come from a place of disadvantage whether you want to accept it or not. I'm not saying you, but many people who come from either racialized community or they are either uh, women or they are on the binary gender identity. They don't come from the place of a acknowledgement and I felt myself working in the food industry for so many years that racism, homophobia and uh, classism has been always there and it's still there. Yeah. Uh, and then when you address, then you are like, you know, oh, you know, just just take it, you know, don't be so hard on it. Yeah, just, just laugh about it, calm down, don't yeah. be so serious about it, you know. So yeah. I think it's important to have a conversation like for those sure. ones for us to be able to address it, especially in an academic institution. I think yes. it's a healthy place for us to be able to figure out these issues and being able to make some changes on it. And you mentioned it before, Bashir, like this is an uncomfortable conversation, mm-hmm. right? And so from my lens as a very large white man, <laughs> right? Who's had like, who's had, you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking sort of in third person now, but you know, the, the white man has had the loudest voice in the room for the longest time. It's, it's hard for me 
to express my feelings as well too. But the fact that you're bringing it up that it's a difficult conversation, I think more and more people need to recognize that it, it, yes, it is an uncomfortable conversation, but avoiding the conversation doesn't help it. I also recognize that as a, as a white man, there's a lot of things that I don't know about, I see a lot of things, I, don't, I know almost nothing about what it's like to be a black man or what it's like to be a black chef. I know nothing about what it's like to be a Canadian Asian woman who was raised in Alberta. I can't pretend to even like yeah. to even understand what, what either of you have gone through in, in, in the kitchen. So where I'm, where I'm leading with this sort of question is what advice could you give to white men? Or you, you brought up, Bashir, you brought up white women as well too. Like what what advice could you give to uh, to us as we have this discussion about race, class, and gender? I think nowadays there are a lot of uh, books that are very informative uh, to uh, white people. They can uh, help them understand about their own uh, white privilege, right? I think there are a lot of uh, books out there. I think that, you no, know, even for men, I mean, we're talking about uh, race, but also for men. Like, I think there's a, an element of a modesty and humility for you just to be able to listen without defending yourself. So I speak that with my son. I have a 21-year-old son. He's actually going to turn 21 in a couple of weeks. And uh, I address with him about using examples of a male geography versus female geography. So I say, when your sister walk around the streets mm-hmm. late at nighttime, Versus when you walk around the streets late at nighttime, it's different than, uh, you know, th- there's a difference between when the two of you are walking. But also when you as a black man walking around the streets, so in a geographical space, uh, versus when a white man walks around in the same neighborhood, there is also that difference as well. So women are the first ones uh, to be in the place of a vulnerability. So when you walk in behind the woman late at nighttime, are you mindful about how she's feeling? Mm-hmm. So my son might say to me, that's not my job. I'm not doing anything to her, mm-hmm. right? I says, it's not your job to think about that, but it's a human condition for you to kind of slow down for a second and think if my sister will be out there and there is a, a man, forget about the race, there is a man walking behind her, she will feel a bit intimidated because there is a reality that we live in a patriarchic world. A lot of a woman historically and still currently are getting abused, killed and hurt every single day. So you as a man, just allow yourself 10 seconds, let it go ahead of you. Becoming mindful like that. So for me, I'm, I'm working that with my son, but I speak to my daughter as well about geography. So we talk about black geography, right? So going back with the conversation, there are a lot of uh, books out there to give that element of uh, understanding about privilege and being uh, white or being a man in general. So I speak from a man perspective. So sometimes when I have a gatherings and I have collaboration with female chefs, uh, I try to ask as much as possible for my female chefs uh, to take the lead. Mm-hmm. So I understand my own privilege as a man. You're not talking about race, right? So I say, how do you want to lead this particular conversation? So then we bring an element of equality, right? Instead of me thinking, it's not my job to think about it, she needs to assert herself, right? So I think there is an element of a personal seeking because if you don't seek for it, then you will never be able to find it. So a person starts from a place of a seeking for it and then the element of a do not defend yourself for something that you haven't done so if somebody speaks about white privilege, mm-hmm. most people, they will tend to say of oh, white privilege or male privilege, you will say, oh, no, no, I'm not like that. So the first thing they will do, they will be defending themselves. 
So instead of defending yourself, I think just be okay to listen to somebody else speaking about their feelings and their emotions. You know, so I think it goes back to that element of like humbleness, a little bit of a humility, just like allow someone to speak because when they're speaking, they're not talking about you. They're talking about their own experiences. When my daughter speaks to me about certain issues that are going on in life about women, I don't defend myself as a man. And I say, oh, I'm not like this man right here. I'm just listening to where she's coming from in her own experience as a woman or like all my friends with their own experience with their own gender. You know, so I think it comes from seeking for a place of a growth and being able to listen to somebody with an element of empathy instead of just like with their own reasonings. So... Well, that's fantastic advice, and, and that great. advice is great for students. For our listeners out there who want to learn more about the subject, I just finished a fantastic book called White, White Fragility. Really interesting book that that helps uh, that helps white people navigate through um, their their fragility. And um, and as you say, uh, Bashir, um, just don't be so quick to defend yourself when someone has mentioned mention something that might not that might be difficult to hear and maybe ask more one of my biggest takeaways was ask for you know ask for people's experiences and and truly ask them for for their for their advice and how you can do things differently i remember being at the terroir symposium a couple of years ago and you making injera tacos yeah they were absolutely unbelievable they were so so tasty what was the last meal you cooked You know, I can't. No, no, no. You know, I'm I'm married to a lovely woman from Barbados. She's so patient with me. So at home, we all have to chip in together. So at home, as an example, I have three dishwashers. I got a 21-year-old. <laughs> Since I cannot afford the real dishwasher, I got a 21-year-old, a 19-year-old, and a 12-year-old. So my responsibility is to do meal planning with them. So I say to them, okay, what do you guys want to eat this week? Okay, so we're going to go and shop a few things. We are all very busy, so I might do some basis for them, and then they will have to do certain other things for themselves. So we have the everyday cooking, and then there is the cooking that I like. I feel like... Um, I'm, I'm going to cook tonight. Like I feel I'm cooking tonight. And wh- the last time that I really cooked, cooked, it was like over the holidays because I had a two weeks off. I was mm-hmm. well rested and I, I, my hands were like itching. Like mm-hmm. I needed to cook. You know, sometimes you know, my wife tells me, can't you just chill? Just like, <laughs> is it possible for you to just sit down and do nothing? Just relax. No, just relax. That's, that's not chess. That's, we don't, we don't do we that. We don't do that, you know? And I'm, I'm, I'm glad when I speak to you guys because you can relate to what I'm talking about. Honey, if you're listening to me. Um, <laughs> I can see Hannah right now. Yeah, it's like, just looking at me, looking at you. Nodding, nodding, uh, right? So over the holidays, I was able to cook. And, um, you know, I, I love to cook. Recently, peanuts has been my thing. Because uh, my youngest daughter now, she's not allergic to peanuts anymore. She used to be allergic to peanuts, but we just like been giving her a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. So now she's not allergic to peanuts anymore. And because peanuts now, they grow here in Ontario. I've been doing a lot of dishes where it's like, uh, you know, peanut sauces and peanut stews and so forth. So I made a peanut stew chicken. You know, I made a peanut stew chicken, you know, because that's one of the things that I recently fall in love with. My wife's friend, she's uh, from Ghana and um, she cooks with the palm oil. And so it's the only thing that I haven't used was actually palm oil into the recipe. But yeah, I made a peanut stew chicken and uh, it was delicious. But the favorite dish that my wife cooks for me is a Bayesian stew chicken. Like that's my comfort food at home when I tell, okay, 
I need you to make me do, do, your, do your thing. Like, you know, the Bajan stew chicken. So, um, yeah, peanut stew chicken, what I made over the holidays. That's so wonderful. Yeah. Bashir, it's been such a pleasure having you in here with us, talking talking with us. And I, I hope we can continue this conversation and uh, and get together and actually cook with you one day. That would I be know. I would love to. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually nervous to to <laughs> for both of you, but we'll looking sit together forward before to our vacation. <laughs> I'm looking forward to. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for coming in. Um, my name is Jason Ennis. My name is Wendy Ma. My name is Bashir Munye. And you've been listening to the Chef Pod. <laughs>